Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of the Field and Garden Podcast. It is your friend, Lisa Mason Ziegler, and thank you so much for joining me here today. And if you are new here to the Field and Garden Podcast, and you want to learn more about the work that the Gardener's Workshop is doing, head on over to thegardenersworkshop.com where you will find a learning center, lots of free resources, as well as online courses, um, our online garden shop where we offer the same tools, seeds, and supplies and my courses and my books that you hear me mention from time to time right here on this podcast. And so I'm really excited because a new kind of episode has kind of developed within the Gardener's Workshop. And it is, we've named it Bug Talk with Lisa and Rhonda. Hi, Rhonda. Hi, Lisa. So Rhonda is one of our team members. She is a longtime friend of the farm. It's Rhonda Graves. And um, she started out, we called volunteers back in the day, friends of the farm. And back in the days when we did that, Rhonda was one of the people that applied here and quickly was taken into the fold and stuck with us for several years. And then it actually bloomed into a job and she is our warehouse manager. And she and I share passion for beneficial creatures um, in the um, garden and just in the environment in the world, right? So Rhonda, why don't you tell us how you kind of came, I mean, I know you're a master gardener, a master naturalist, and just a passionate gardener. Tell us a little bit about how you came to be such a bug hugger as we're calling ourselves these days. It probably, I mean, I'm sure it started before I became a master gardener, but um, going through the classes, you know, the concentration was um, all about, of course, pollinators, honeybees, and, mo- you know, and then monarchs, because there's so much going on with monarchs. People are planning for the monarchs. And the more I, I guess, observed in my garden, there are just so many other things out there that um, may not be as beautiful as a monarch or as, well, beneficial as a a bee, but there are lots of other bees too. Uh, I just learned that there's just such a diversity out there and they all have their own little story and their own little job. And some of them may be bothersome, but um, they all have purpose. And I just, I just appreciate that. And just like observing them and uh, learning more about them. And I have probably every book there is to have um, about bugs. <laughs> <laughs> or I'm, I'm still looking, actually. There are more out there. Yeah, you know, and I think something you just said nails it and tells the whole story. They all have purpose, yeah. right? Everybody fits into the food chain somewhere. And when that one, that host or that individual area is lost in the chain, it breaks the cycle. And so I am, I want to point out before she and I are going to share today, um, the tidbits of how to invite beneficials to your garden, which Rhonda is going to kind of share from that side of it. And then I'm going to share how I invite and maintain also in a farm setting. Um, And this is just our personal experience. Many other ways that we learn about all the time and are starting to implement, but just kind of the things that we have done that and how we do it that might just help you make it be a practical part of your garden. 
But out of the gate, we, what we really want you to know, it's more than just insects, right, Rhonda? Oh, yeah, gosh. There's so many other things that depend on the insects or, yeah, help control the insects. Yeah, I mean, we're talking birds, snakes, yee, and you eek. <laughs> so many people are afraid of snakes until you learn they are the number one predator of voles. This is the time of the year that people are reporting so much loss, right, Rhonda? Oh, yeah. <laughs> from, from voles. And friends, I'm telling you, it was our number one cash crop loss on this farm. They really like cool flowers. They eat larkspur, snapdragons tulips, any bulb, they'll eat shrub roots. Um, and what did I do? How did I curb it? I started just simply providing habitat, piles of raw black snakes or black racers or whatever kind you have. They are not poisonous. They don't want you friends, but they will eat those voles gone before you even realize they're So we're talking bird snakes, turtles, frogs, just more than insects. But today we're going to talk about. So Rhonda, why don't you kick us off with how some things maybe that you've done to invite beneficial creatures into your um, urban garden. So you live in a neighborhood just like I do, right? Um, and I know you have chickens. Yes. And, and they do their fair share of bug eating and other thing eating. So, um, but um, I have an area that's enclosed for them, so they generally aren't free-ranging, but occasionally I'll let them out and let them um, take advantage of the things that are out there. Um, I, I had a pretty mostly shady yard. There's a sunny spot, but a couple of years ago, I, have a Japanese uh, I had a Japanese maple, just a generic. It was a volunteer somebody gave me, and I had planted it pretty much in the middle of the backyard, and I was like, this is... I am not getting any more sun by letting this stay here. So I, you know, it was probably as big around as my leg when I cut it down just a little bit at a time. It wasn't, I didn't have to call in professionals. It was pretty easy. Um, and I decided to plant a pollinator garden there. So um, I have a, you know, cup plant and Monarda and I don't know what all else, probably some volunteers that you've handed off to me, uh, some, uh, sun, some helianthus, some sunflower. Anyway, um, and I've watched that. I mean, it's all of probably four by five. Um, it's a, and it's getting bigger every year because it's like the grass kind of comes this way. And every year I push the grass out and add some more plants and just uh, milkweeds in there. Um, so I just watch what's going on in that area and, um, and take pictures and identify. And um, I, I'm just fascinated and yeah, of what's going on in there. Um, we always hear about companion planting, but the new thing is insectary planting. So you're basically planting things to attract those beneficials. And that's what companion planting is. It's planting those things that are going to attract those little minute pirate bugs or wasp or, you know, whatever uh, is around. And they need nectar and pollen, just like they, if they're a predator, a predator they also need that, uh, that other insect that they're going after like aphids or whatever. So, so sure. they need nectar and pollen too, so. Right, so planting that little pollinator garden, which I mean, four foot by five foot, I feel that's pretty doable for a lot of people, you know? Yep. And, um, you know, this time of the year, we're recording this the end of March, um, you know, in the spring and early summer, there are so many plant sales held by 
master gardeners, native plant groups. I mean, that's a great place to go and find out what is what are the best plants for your region, right? That attract different things. Um, I did, you know, I was going to save this till later, but I'll say it now. So as I was preparing for this podcast, I pulled out Jessica Wallacer's um, latest book, Attracting Beneficial Bugs to Your Garden. It's an, a revised and updated second edition. And in the back, she has a putting it all together section, who the beneficials eat and what to plant. I mean, it is absolutely perfect. First off, I am just going to be a very proud mother and say almost every, I'm pretty sure I'm going to say that every insect on these, there's like probably 16 to 20 insects listed here. We have every one of them here on our farm. I was just, I mean, I was just thrilled. It's like, oh, well, let me see what I'm not getting and just see what she has to say. I mean, assassin bugs, big eyed bugs, damsel bugs, dragonflies, Pirate bugs, lace wings, ladybugs, ground beetles, fireflies. I mean, and it goes on and on. But um, this is a really cool, quick reference. It tells you right there what they eat. I mean, and you know who my favorite, and I was just so happy to see that Jessica listed this one number one. I mean, I have to say that I have a real love for assassin bugs. Do you see those in your garden? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The little, um, I can't, I think it's called the pale assassin anyway they're just slender little green ones i just found one the other day i was clean, cleaning up a little bit in that area and um here's this little guy probably no longer than you know half inch less than that and he, and it was just a baby so they're already out there i mean a little bit of warm weather and they're already start starting to move around so i and, personally love the green lace wings the one that walk the ones that walk around with they, they call them debris carrying, um, the greens yes. that they throw bodies on their back or lichen or just whatever. And you, you can see their little pinchers sticking out from underneath. They're like little sheep and little wolves in sheep clothing, um, just out there ready to eat something. So they're kind of like making their own little backpack full of snacks. Yeah. 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 And they kind of do this little cha-cha, you know, <laughs> when they're on the tree, they go, they walk a little bit this way and you're like, is that is it a little piece of dust or lichen and then you look closer and it's like it's just this little insect y'all this is what happens to you yeah (laughs) you start exploring what's going on out in your garden I know that I have been guilty of on more than one occasion in the middle of a big harvest you know heat's coming everybody's cutting at a fast rate of speed and me stopping and going live on a social media platform to show, I mean, who is the best guy is these assassin bugs. I think I, I look at them as kind of the Navy SEALs. You know, they are the lone wolves out in the garden. They're typically, you know, hang out by their self and they've got on their, is it called their probus? What is their little? Probos- I, th- I guess it's, I don't know if it's a proboscis. I think that's a butterfly. It's, it's a different terminology, but it's like a, a, hook a spear. Can, yeah, a spear that they, and a, and a straw. It's a piercing, sucking mouth parts is what they call yes, it. I'm not sure and, the technical term. I mean, these guys are like sometimes two inches long. So they're really visible. You can see them. And when they have a stink bug or a caterpillar speared on that thing, I mean, it is a blooming sight to behold. And 
I mean, that's when I just can't resist stopping and going live. And I know that you and I, what did we find? Isn't that what we found on the front of our building one day? Yeah. yeah was an assassin, yeah. but he had a moth or something, didn't he? Yeah, he had a moth. It was, it was pretty dramatic. Yeah. It was one of the wheel bugs. So there are lots of different kinds of assassin bugs. The wheel bug is one that, I mean, most people recognize they have that cool little gear on their back and they're one, you can really see that mouth part. Um, yes. If you look, they tuck it underneath their, I guess, abdomen, their chest. Um, and and when they need it, they pull it out and, and, and that poor little moth, I know I feel sorry for the little moth, but when he was done with it, the moth just dropped to the ground because he had sucked it dry. I'm sorry, y'all. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, there's never any, you know, I mean, never pleasure in death, but it's tolerable in some of these great situations, right? So, so Rhonda planted a pollinator garden in her urban neighborhood so here on my farm, um, you know, so for those not um, very familiar with us, um, I am an urban farm. I'm literally 100% surrounded by houses, 200,000 residents in the city of Newport News. And my little farm is the last standing farm in what was a once a very large farming community. And, um, you know, sh very long story, very short, um, the 40 acre adjoining horse boarding farm that we lost just three years ago um, was a major player in allowing me to explore, um, I don't want to say organic gardening, it's, na it's nature gardening, it's allowing nature to really do its job. And that became really clear to me when we knew that we were going to lose those adjoining pastures as long with the hedgerows, these like 20 foot wide, acre after acre, that's what divided the pastures into like five acre um, paddocks. And those hedgerows were hundreds, a couple of hundred years old, I was told. Oh my gosh, Rhonda, the things that lived in there, I mean, literally tens of thousands of different and lots of creatures, communities. And um, anyway, the reality came crashing down to us that us being able to grow so wonderfully over here lived over there. And that was home base. And that sent me on the journey to, to recreate as best we could what was over there. So those guys would have not only a place to go, even though we know we lost thousands and thousands. I mean, there's no way to measure, but we wanted to provide a place for some of them to come. And that's when I um, actually friends, you know, yeah, I'm a gardener. Yeah, I'm pretty well seasoned. But there's sometimes just specialized things, especially if you're a commercial farmer, that it just really helps to have professional help. And that's when I reached out to Denise Green. Um, and back then her business was called Sassy Frass Farms. And I'm sorry to say, I do not know the name. Huckleberry, I think is the name of her new design business. Um, but Denise specializes in native planting landscape design, and she designed our landscape. And that just meant, friends, that I wanted a border around my farm. Why not make it native? Why not create the place that all these creatures that we're talking about would have a home base, right? Um, and so, Rhonda, do you have some permanent plantings in your yard that are kind of beneficial to these guys too? I mean, any native trees or anything like that or shrubs? 
Yeah, I have uh, I have a pawpaw. I have a spice bush. I have calicanthus, which is allspice. Um, what else do I have? I have a. Um, Don't you have a big tree in your front yard? I do have a pecan tree, but I don't, oh, I I don't, thought you had they're a, not uh, truly native. Yeah, they just give yeah. me lots of shade. I have a red bud. Oh my gosh, the red bud was just. I went out there the other day. Whatever last warm, warm day we had. And the bees were all over it. In this case, it was the carpenter bees, which we have a fair number. I have a, you know, 100 and almost 14 year old house and they live in the front rail of the porch. And every spring they come out and um, on a warm day and try to scare me. The males like to try to scare you to death. But yeah, um, there are first pollinators quite often, at least the big ones that I see. And um, yeah, so they they habitate in my front porch. <laughs> And I don't have a problem with it. You know, I mean, isn't it about adjusting? I mean, it's like we talk about adjusting to diversity in all other areas of our life. And it's really kind of the same way at home. I mean, I think that people talk about, you know, friends, if you want to enjoy truly organic fruits and vegetables, you have to stop looking for the perfect apple or the perfect tomato, that there might be a blemish here and there. Well, that's kind of how we need to look at our yards and gardens and our farm. So, all right. So Rhonda planted a pollinator garden. I've planted this native border that just continues to get wider. I mean, we add to it all the time. That's a total mix of trees, shrubs, and a few, very few perennials. It's more of a permanent planting mix of evergreens and deciduous. Um, and so those borders are these plants that we're talking about, not only provide food, but they also provide habitat, right, Rhonda? I mean, these things need a place to live year round, right? Right. right. And I've just been reading a lot about um, grasses, especially native grasses, the ones that are clumping grasses. Um, and they're calling them beetle banks, you know, um, where that's just, yeah, grasses. That's one of those things that, uh, you know, beetles are so important as predators. Um, yeah, the food, they're larvae, they're, they're in the ground. Um, but yeah, grasses apparently is uh, the, the, the new thing people are looking at to uh, give them. That was in the book. <laughs> yes. When she just said that, y'all, my light bulb went off. That's the page before the one I was just looking at. Beetle banks and yeah, bumps. And- Yeah. And you don't, and two, another thing about grasses, I never really thought about it before. You know, we think of them as being wind pollinated, which they primarily are, but they still also have a lot of pollen that is very easy, easily accessible, you know, from, you know, any bug that wants, that needs a little, you know, a little boost, a little food. So. Yeah. And so the image in this book, this is in the back of Jessica's book also. I mean, she really kind of shows the picture of one. And, you know, we have here on the farm another part of how we attract and sustain beneficials, whether it be birds or um, whatever is, I call them um, habitat islands. Um, and I think they, I haven't read this part, the, the beetle banks, but I think that's probably the same concept is I have two um, islands on that flank our big cutting garden at each end that kind of can be is permanent. We don't mow it really. We don't mm-hmm. till it. We don't do anything. We just let it do its own thing. And it's heavily infested with rudbeckias, um, 
and um, Solidago, and there's um, some other, the Maxima, and there's some Joe Pye weed in there. So it's your your horse fennel too, isn't that in there? Is it horse fennel? Yes. (laughs) And so it's just kind of, I mean, and here it is, friends, flower farmers, that island bank that is so heavily infested with Rudbeckia triloba, which is one of the best bouquet fillers, there is plenty for me to cut, even in a big bouquet making um, business, there is enough for us and a ton left for everybody else to have in there. Um, So it's talk, let's talk about just for a minute, providing that permanent area, because a lot of these guys lay their eggs in the ground, right? Right. Yeah. You you think about something like a honeybee. I mean, they might forage several miles, but most of these insects are not going to leave your yard. Um, A lot of the smaller things, I mean, they're going to spend their whole life and hopefully their children's lives will be spent in your yard too. Um, It's kind of interesting because a lot of plants when they are attacked by an herbivore or a you know plant or other I mean an insect or otherwise they actually release these chemicals that alert um insects to come and you know like the what is it the t- the tobacco hornworm or the tomato hornworm um, when that plant is attacked it releases a chemical and it's that's what attracts that wasp that parasite wasp that's going to lay an egg in the caterpillar and if you find those in your yard don't feel sorry for the caterpillar you just have raised another generation of wasps so those little those little minute wasps that yeah and there's there's a parasitoid for pretty much everything there's actually ones that parasitize other things so Yeah, I mean, and here you go, friends. It is so much deeper and wider than we can imagine. And so I want to talk about one more thing before we talk about not intervening um, is the biggest, it's like step away from the spray bottle, friends. Just get away from that trigger. But the other part of this is providing a water source. I mean, we've always, I was raised in a bird watching household. I mean, we had a bird book on our breakfast nook um, bar and my dad built bird feeders that were right outside our window. And my mom made toast with jelly for the Baltimore (laughs) Orioles that came and ate every morning. You know, I mean, I did not realize how significant that was, you know what I mean? And that really all my brother and my sister, both, I mean, we all are, you know, you're walking along, talking to somebody, maybe going down a trail in a park and we're scanning for birds constantly, you mm-hmm. know, and it's because that's what we were raised in. I mean, what a gift to give your kids. But so I've always paid attention to having water in my yard and in my garden. And what I've learned a couple things about having water is your birds don't just need it for drinking. Bathing is essential for them to keep their flying stuff or equipment in order. But beneficial insects, I find the bigger wasps that also will carry off those hornworms um, that I used to be terrified of. I see them on the edge drinking water. um, Mm -hmm. And so having water in your garden is a pretty significant thing, too, right? Oh, for sure. And they're they're actually plants. I'm I'm thinking about the cup plant um, that actually gave me one of. Yeah. And it's yeah. And those big leaves. Um, the way they go around the stem, they actually make a little cup in there. And I've seen birds drink out of them. I'm sure the insects drink out of them too. 
Um, and it's, it's just a really cool native plant, at least in our area it is, so. And you know what, you're saying that this is not a native plant, but if you're a flower farmer, friends, and I don't know the name, I do know the name, but I can't recall it. There's a, there's a name of that structure when the leaf is, or when the stem goes through the center of the leaf, you know what other plant does that? And oh, I have yeah. seen bumblebees is Buplurum. Buplurum oh, mm-hmm. has a leaf, I mean, a stem that comes up through the leaf and it creates right. a thing to hold water and um, we have seen on many occasion insects, you know, early in the morning that are out there drinking on that. But I think people, you have to move water habits and chores up on your list. So in our house, um, you know, both Steve and I are pretty busy people. He has a business too. And, but he has always made it his job that when he comes home in the evening, when he gets out of his truck, this his normal habit would be to go to the back door, put his lunchbox and his thermos down and walk over, turn on the hose and clean, you know, spray out the bird baths and refill them. That not only keeps a fresh water source, but it is mosquito control. I think how long does a mosquito larva need? It's less than 30. It's 36 hours or something, right? Yeah, I'm not sure. But yeah, they they can <laughs> pretty change quick. It every day or every other day is definitely the way to keep you know, yeah, all and, that water. and also, I mean, we found, you know, you say it every other day for me, I always forget, oh, well, maybe today's not the day I won't do it. So doing it every day, <laughs> day. is just the best way for me, because it's just when you're busy, I think, but water is essential. Now, Rhonda, I just want to talk about how do we keep these guys in our yard? I know providing all those things that we just talked about, but we have to also take steps not to kill them accidentally. And that's what happens so often when we use products, right? Even right. I think people are very assumptive and misled that organic pesticides don't kill beneficial stuff. And that is in fact, not true. Correct. Right. Right. Um, you know, like, like the perethrins, which I think they come from chrysanthemums, but they kill everything. Um, so yeah, first I think identifying the insect you may yes. have had damage, uh, you know, uh, three days ago and the bad guy's already gone and maybe a new guy's there and has taken care of the, the, the pest itself. And then you have to look at it and it's like, does that really matter? Does that one little nibble out of that one little leaf, they make a lot of leaves um, <laughs> so they can be eaten. Um, I think about um, leaf cutter bees too you know, seeing that little curl out of a leaf, that little perfect circle that they're going to go take back to their nest to make, you know, a little wall so they can lay an egg and then do another one. Um, I don't consider that damage. It's a sign of life. And really observing what's on your plant, you know, see if they're actually eating. If They may be there eating something else and they just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But, um, and then looking for things that, um you know, if you have caterpillars on things that you don't want them on, um, there are things that you can use that will target that insect and nothing else, won't harm anything else. Like BT for, well, for mosquito larvae, for those um, cabbage white um, butterflies. Yeah. yeah, the little green worm that ends up on your broccoli and your kale and all that good stuff. Um, yeah, you can just put that on that 
plant, and that's the only thing it's going to affect are those larvae. So there are there are selective things that you can use that don't kill everything. So, but you have to do a little bit of homework to figure that out. And you know what my um, method of madness that I practice now, and people really don't believe this. I mean, I understand somebody that's be, that hasn't been practicing allowing nature to kind of do the heavy lifting, right? And they're just, they've got a big problem. Not only are they growing things that are pest magnets, that's another big part yep. of being able to do this. There's just certain things that um, you just drop from your grow list. And that is different for everybody in different areas, right? And um, that you have to really value what you're talking about. To me, I value the community of the good stuff that's going on more than an individual plant, you know, and I think you have to reach that point um, in your garden because it's, I understand to their self, because I've had, how many times has this been said to me, that may work for you, but that will never work where we are. And it's like, it can, but it takes a couple years. Um, I know that the book Grow Organic that I read way back in the beginning of time when I was just really kind of getting my hooves into to farming and um, in growing or it's grow organic. And that's Doug Oster and Jessica Wallace are also was the co-author on that one. In that book, it described the, if you give up chemicals today, then it kind of takes you through. It takes two years to really <laughs> restore the natural order of a garden. And I mean, just knowing, okay, two years. All right. Maybe I can do this. Um, but you just have to take the time and identifying it, as you said. Um, and my motto is, I've just value building this community over any individual plant. <clears throat> so if I have a plant that has chronic pest problems, what's the number one thing I do? I don't grow it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like there's another plant that can take its place that may not be identical, but similar. And then also maybe drop it for a year or two and then bring it back and see if you still have that pressure. You know, that community that you're needed for that plant might have changed. Um, you know, it's just, isn't that the exciting part, Rhonda? It's always changing, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And, and just discovering what's new out there. And uh, there's so many more resources too. I mean, if you have any particular plant, if you want to, if something you think something's eating your plant, you can just Google what uh, gladiolas and extension or pest and extension. And that will bring up what pests there are, whether they be diseases or um, actually insects that affect that particular plant. So there's so many resources today that we have that are just, I mean, they're on your phone. I mean, we don't have to Literally. go to a library. <laughs> it's like, and so let's talk about that for just a second, some good resources. Um, and so we feel like the university and extension offices um, are the best go-to primarily for information. Um, sometimes there might be other options to treat a problem outside of their recommendations, perhaps. Identification of disease and pests there's no better resources than those, right? Right. right. And some, I mean, and I, I, 
some are better than others. Some have more um, research in a particular area because that's what their demographics for their particular, yeah. their customers in their state. Um, and I would imagine most states, I know Virginia has this, if you look at the pest management guide, you can go through that. It's online. Um, you can look up any particular plant and find out what affects it. You can find out the life cycle of that um, pest or whatever. And then you can find out what the um, mechanical, cultural, and chemical, organic or otherwise, um, treatments are. So some, most of the times they'll say, it's benign, don't worry about it. Um, not necessarily in those words, but... Um, yeah, you can go to your state and find, uh, find what you need and call you, like you say all the time, call your local extension agent if you have a problem. And so how would they find that resource? Hmm. The pest management guide? Yeah. Uh, you would find for like for Virginia and it'll give just, um, recommendations for our state because every state is going to have different chemical recommendations or different recommendations based on right. their research. Um, so you would find your state um, ag school. So in Virginia, that's Virginia State and Virginia Tech. And you would just look up um, extension in your Virginia extension and, and you'll find those resources. So every state has at least one school that is agricultural and um, mechanical engineering, that kind of stuff, school. So we all have these resources, right? Scholars at work. Exactly. Exactly. That's what folks just really don't. I didn't understand that part, you know? Um, so let's just give them an overview. Let's just give the rundown of first off, if somebody finds a pest, what's the number one thing they do or finds an insect, not just a pest, any insect. I did it. Yeah, idea, and there's so many ways to identify it now. You can, well, you can take it to your local extension agent. You put it in a, well, take a picture of it first and see if you can find it that way because that's an easy way. iNaturalist is a great resource. Um, Bug Guide, which is, I believe, Iowa. I think it's bugguide.net. You can actually, and I use that for years, where you can send them a picture, and there are scientists all over the world who can ID. And the cool thing with sending it to that or to iNaturalist is there are people doing research on our observations. So seeing a whatever bug in Virginia in March, um, I mean, I have somebody that take, you know, looks at all the monarch pictures I take. Um, so that's, those are resources and they'll ID. And the cool thing with bugguide.net and iNaturalist, but bugguide.net. There are so many pictures on there. You can see all the life cycles from, you know, however, whether it's a nymph, a larva, um, pupa, yeah, all kinds of things, so. Awesome, all right. So IDing what you got before you decide, and then you're gonna look to see, do you need to even do anything about it? Right. Right. Is it, is it a pest? Uh, is it eating your plant? Is it eating more plant than you can handle? Right. <laughs> Key word. I mean, it's like one of the strategies that we use here on the farm about, you know, we plant a ton of sunflowers every week. That's a big part of our flower farming um, business is dependent on the air. What I've learned is when I plant sunflowers near those, those habitat islands I was telling you about, rabbits live in there. 
And so when we plant sunflowers, typically within 25 to 50 feet of those islands, we literally, we plant the sunflowers, which are three weeks old, basically. So they're about five to seven inches tall at the most. Um, we plant and we just lay row cover over them and, mm-hmm. you know, like a floating row cover. And we have found that once they get past the like 12 inch and you, they'll just push the cover up. Once they get to 12 inches, the rabbits are like, up. Oh, too tall for me. I'm going to look for something else. So they yeah, kind of, looking, yeah. so it's just, you have to kind of find the way to ward off the problem that you're having. And sometimes they just outgrow it, you know? Right. Yeah. So I did it. Then is it really a problem? And then, I mean, as your interest is peaked to go to some of these resources that you're hearing us talk about our books, you know, Jessica's book, attracting beneficial bugs to your garden. Do you have a book today you want to highlight too? I have the wasp book by uh, Heather Holm. Um, So, and it's just, this is Eastern. Yeah. It's like really thick Eastern North America. um, And she just highlights some of the common wasp you would see in your garden. I love that one because, you know, everybody freaks out. Well, about yellow jackets. Well, they're one of those guys that, um, or girls, um, that is a social insect, just like honeybees, they're social and they're going to defend their house. Um, most of the wasp and most of the bees are solitary. And when they're out about, as she says, um, when they're out in the restaurant, they don't care about you. They're worrying about collecting nectar and pollen. Um, but if you, if you know, there's, yeah. So the, the solitary wasp, the solitary bees generally are too busy um, about doing their job to worry about you. It's those, um, those social things that are going to defend their nest, their home. And, um, yeah, so I love that book. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great book too. Um, so friends, we're just trying to bait your interest to realize that not only is it super better for the world, to stop using stuff and to plant a little bit, you know, I'm not suggesting that anybody is going to like mow down their yard of non-native plants to plant stuff, to invite stuff in. You just have to start when your next choice comes, the next time you want to plant some stuff, look to native, native to provide for some of these creatures that we want to invite into our garden and um, by doing that and providing them with some habitat, a little bit of water, um, they come in and stay. And then if you ID them and walk away from the trigger, just resist the urge to treat anything. I mean, I, my attitude is now too. It's like, there is really nothing worthy that I would put chemicals in my yard. You know, yep. for yep. me, my dog, my family, any, you know, there's just, it's not even an option. I, when I walk into a big box store somewhere, you know, all you have to do is follow your nose to the chemical area, right? I just want to go down the aisle. And it's like, step away from the stuff, y'all. There's a better way and it's less, it costs no money, basically. That's um, some, I, I heard somebody say the other day, if you get rid of, what they say, if you get rid of, if you kill a beneficial, you'll have to pay to do their job. And I was like, that's a what? great one. Yeah, I know. That's a great one. All right, friends, Rhonda and I are continuing this conversation. So stay tuned for another episode coming in the future. We love this bug talk. And um, we just really want to share our love of being bug huggers 
um, for lack of a better word. And there's a reason. It's not that we're creepy. It's that they do a job that is unreplaceable. It's easier. It is cheaper. And it grows a great garden. And it's the best. It's the right thing to do for the whole world. All right, Rhonda, thank you so much. Thank for... you. It's always fun. Yeah. All right, friends. And we meet again. Remember, if you are enjoying this podcast, I would love for you to write a review so other people will see what it's about, as well as the podcast apps where you review us will then show our podcast to browsers, people that are looking for a fun um, review. And it doesn't have to be long, y'all. Just give us a rating and give us a couple of sentence and that will do. And I read every single one of them. They mean so much to me. And if you want to learn more about us, um, head on over to thegardenersworkshop.com till we meet again, friends. Bye, Rhonda. Bye, Lisa. <laughs> See you later. Ciao.